Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast where we talk about things that affect therapists, our practices, the ways that we practice, the ways that we interact with clients. And today I'm going to start by talking about... Back when I was in high school, I had to take chemistry class and <laughs> studying the periodic table. My favorite. Where are you going with this? <laughs> my favorite element at the time was tungsten because we'll W on it. But over time, my, my new favorite element is the element of surprise. <laughs> <laughs> surprise. I think actually a lot of providers are surprised at the No Surprises Act, which we're actually talking about today, going into effect January 1st of 2022. And many people have been over the last couple of weeks speculating on what this means for their practices, what actions that they need to take. And it's seeming to get to be a little bit of a game of telephone out there in therapy land when seeing everybody talk on Facebook groups and this kind of stuff. So Katie and I have done an adequate job of diving into this. And adequate is the right word, I think. (laughs) So we wanted to be able to talk about the big scary aspects of this, the not so scary aspects of this, and the parts of this that are TBD because it's not even fully out there yet. And much like the Spanish Inquisition, nobody knows when it's coming. So so we are going to include some helpful things in our show notes. You can find those over at mtsgpodcast.com. I'm sure we'll be doing a follow-up episode to this a little bit later. We will also include a whole bunch of very boring and dense government regulations in those show notes as well. So that way, you know that we at least can link to other things in our show notes. (laughs) (laughs) We've already started off great. Very adequate, Kurt. Very adequate. (laughs) Yes. So probably the best resource out there, at least as far as condensing down a bunch of what At the, the time of, of, of recording. Yes. Uh, there is an article from the American Psychological Association originally created December 10th, 2021, that outlines what this means for psychologists, but 
if you are a healthcare provider of any other status and you are operating within your license or your credential, this article pretty much applies to you too. So we're going to go through this. We're going to add little bits here and there and also make some suggestions that aren't included in this article and continue to listen to the show and join our Facebook group for further updates on any of the stuff that we're talking about here today as we find important stuff to share. So now actually to the content of the show, if you haven't left yet, but (laughs) (laughs) the No Surprises Act was part of a broad package that was signed into law during the Trump administration. This was a bipartisan bill. And this was really to be a very consumer-friendly bill that prevents patients from getting surprise billing. Now, if anybody's ever been in kind of an emergency situation before, what you'll know is that you don't get a whole lot of time to be in the hospital and ask every single provider, hey, are you in my insurance network? Is this going to be covered? That it's kind of just who you get. And not every person who's working on you is necessarily in network, not necessarily an employee of the hospital. And so what ends up happening is that all of your, your treatment stuff gets submitted to insurance companies. And then like Spanish Inquisition, surprise, there's bills that show up in the mail. And this is generally not seen as very consumer friendly because people don't know what's coming. Yes. Having been on the receiving ends of those kinds of treatments myself in the past, I kind of like where this bill is going. Being a healthcare provider in my own little practice, not liking where this is going because (laughs) there is a, a lot of regulations that are being added into this that while intended very well for kind of emergency situations, our field's a little bit different. Yes. And I think that for private pay providers, there can be times when folks are surprised, not by, oh, the anesthesiologist wasn't in your network and this extra special treatment that happened because you were under sedation cost $27,000. But it is something where some folks don't have a clear sense when they come into therapy, how long they're going to be there for. I think as a profession, I think we're very good at making sure someone understands the fee before they come into the first session. They know what they're going to be charged when they sit down with us. I think the part that feels both, I guess, positive, but also onerous is having to say like, hey, this is how long your treatment's going to be. This is what it's going to cost. And and giving so much information. I mean, it's it's a lot of information that you're having to provide very early in treatment to a client and they basically will hold you to it. And they're given information that they can hold you to it if if it does shift too dramatically. So I I see the I see the point, but I also see that it's gonna be a lot of work especially I think just to set it up. I think that there's a way to systematize it. We can talk about that when we have our, our, our kind of discussion around suggestions later, but to begin, it's going to take some work. And so the main crux of what you're talking about here is providing clients with a good faith estimate. 
Yes. Before we get into what the good faith estimate is, let's talk a little bit about the intake phone call with clients, because Mm -hmm. I think certain aspects of this, many providers are doing in one way or another, where in many jurisdictions, we're required to discuss our fees with clients before they come into our first session. Yes. That, you know, no surprises. It's not that they're showing up in our office and then all of a sudden being like, wait, what? That we do provide that usually verbally in an intake phone call. What the good faith estimate now adds to our work is in that intake phone call, we need to start having language around, are you planning to submit a claim to your insurance company for the services that you're going to receive from me? Those of you who are in network with insurance companies, that's all to be determined in the future as far as how that works with insurance companies. We're really talking to those cash paying clients, those out of network therapists, those who provide super bills. If you have a hybrid practice, half listen to this, turn off the insurance <laughs> side of your brain. But in that initial phone call, you need to ask clients, are you planning to submit this for a claim? Now, the way that most of us are already doing this is around this language of super bills. Hey, do you want a yes. super bill for our services? Well, and I also do, do you want me to do courtesy billing and and actually take the reins on, you know, kind of getting insurance information and that kind of stuff. So I think those of us who are, that have a sizable portion of our practices that are private pay navigate this, but there are some clients that come in, never discuss insurance. And I think that the, the shift that I'm going to make is I'm going to ask that directly versus kind of allowing it to organically happen in conversation. Because if somebody comes, says, what's your fee? I say $200. They say, okay. Like, I don't necessarily take that extra step <laughs> all the time about that. I mean, sometimes I'll say, you know, do you have insurance benefits and do you want me to, to do courtesy billing or would you like a super bill? But I've not been diligent about it for folks that don't seem interested. So at this point, we have to ask the question. We have to know about that. I don't know what we do with that information, but we just have to ask and we have to know. <laughs> That's probably more of the to be determined. <laughs> well, so from the APA article, what we do after asking if they intend to submit a claim to their insurance is inform them that they can get a good faith estimate of the expected charges and that we can provide it to them in a written document if they want. And that needs to include things like a CPT code, the the billing code for the service sessions that you're intending to do. It needs to include information about the client on it and the anticipated number of sessions. Yeah, and I, and I think that this is a part where I'm seeing some of the the chatter in the therapist community around some of the conversations are, well, what if people hold us to, you know, you said this was going to take 20 sessions and it took 40. These are not contracts. This is not guaranteeing that yeah. therapy is going to end after that many sessions. And I suggest being clear with clients about that, that yeah. as, as far as I can tell from this vantage point, if you follow treatment, if things go well, this should take X number of sessions. And then I think the other piece, if you truly think it's going to be 20 sessions, I think put down 20 sessions. If you think it's going to be longer term treatment, 
I think you, you know, you have to do this. It, it needs to be a good faith estimate for the next 12 months. I think you do it as an annual or to the end of the year, and maybe you do all your good faith estimates in January, but each new year of treatment for each client, you have to do a new good faith estimate. And each time you change the fee or the cadence of treatment, the way I'm reading it is that you need to then do a new good faith estimate. So if somebody increases the number of sessions, like they go from once a week to twice a week, or they shift from twice a month to one a month, you know, like you're going to want to adjust down. It feels onerous. And I think that there's probably a way to make this pretty streamlined if you have a form and you just are changing that number and that number. But the part up front that I get worried about is that it's supposed to have the client's diagnosis. And we're talking about an intake call where people can request these good faith estimates. And so I, I, I'm assuming you put at that point to be assessed or to be diagnosed at the first session or something. Like to me, it seems like some of the information requested doesn't really hold up when you're just getting a good faith estimate from a potential client. Sure. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. So I'm going to go back two points that you made and then come to where you're talking about here. Okay. Okay. Some of us have clients who are lifers, but yes. <laughs> they are. Yes, both you and I are in that that category. <laughs> so, what I intend to do with those clients is, hey, you generally come fifty weeks out of the year. Here's your fee for twenty twenty two. Done. Done. There you go. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be in a form, but we can argue if it can be verbal or if it has to be that whole form. <laughs> I'll give them a form sure. <laughs> uh, to your second point. I wonder if the implementation for a lot of therapists is very standard going to have the first session be actually to bill 90791 as an actual diagnostic interview for your first session that mm-hmm. would have your appropriate rate. And go back to our, our CPT code episode and hear us talk about how most therapists don't actually bill for that one. Yeah. But that, I think actually, if I step back, this whole process might actually make us follow through on things that we're supposed to be doing a little bit better. If we're not having formal diagnostic first sessions, if you're concerned about 
putting a good faith estimate out to a client that you've talked to for about five minutes on the phone and four minutes of them are about what a good faith estimate is, that <laughs> you can actually create a space to say, here's a good faith estimate of what this first diagnostic session is going to cost. And yes. you'll get a new good faith estimate for our sessions after that session based on what comes out in that diagnostic interview. So private pay providers are now going to have to act a little bit like insurance providers and diagnose in the first session and predict how much treatment's going to be needed. Yes. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> well, and to your other point is if you misjudge or if services need to continue, it's not like your relationship with the client just has to stop. You do get to provide new and updated good faith estimates yes. as yes. anything changes. Like you said, if you're going to more sessions a week, if you change your fees mid-year, if mm -hmm. any number of different things changes, potentially even diagnostics, then you're going to want to provide good faith estimates that are updated and I would recommend that you put language on those updated ones that this replaces the previous good faith estimate from whatever the previous date is. And it does say in the language, and I don't know if this is in the APA article or the actual legislation, but it does say that when you provide a new good faith estimate, you do need to identify what is different. And so if it's, hey, everything's rolling along, same fee, same number of sessions next year, I think it's saying this is continuing and it's, you know, there's no changes in the fees, no changes in the predicted number of sessions this year. This is for this year. I think for folks where you're changing fees or dramatically changing the cadence of sessions, I think that would be an important thing to put. And, and definitely, I like your language of this replaces a previous good faith estimate. One thing I'm thinking about with this is that if you've got a niche that that generally, you know, or your lifers that generally have this is how many sessions you have per year. And so maybe it's 48 or 27 or whatever it is, you know, depending on the cadence of their treatment, shifting from every other week to once a week back to every other week to once a month, like assuming you're kind of still in that number of sessions per year, I think you probably are fine. Changing fees, definitely new good faith estimate. But like, if you've said, this is what you're, what we were looking at this year, I think that could, I think that could work. What do you think? I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> yes, nor am I. <laughs> it's probable. And, you know, I, any challenges to this are still to be determined. This is yeah. all, you know, this is what regulations are going into effect the you know, HHS is not, you know, mm -hmm. had any opportunities to enforce any things yet. So we'll wait for somebody to get punished and then we'll be able to tell you what they're doing. <laughs> but realistically, it seems like a good faith estimate is exactly that. It's good faith that, yes. hey, yeah. you know, you typically come to three out of four sessions a month in case you come to more. You know, some months you do make them all. So good faith, I'm going to put that you're going to make all of the sessions over the next like five months and we can evaluate at that point, you know, what's needing to be changed. 
there are certain aspects of this that I think, while onerous as far as communication with our clients, have the potential to make us actually talk with our clients about their treatment more frequently. Yeah. And I think that that's part of what's scary to a lot of therapists is that clients are going to see, I spend how much on therapy each year? I know. That's the part that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's going to be rough. (laughs) (laughs) Most people don't want to think about it. (laughs) I could buy several cars for this. That I think if, you know, you're not wanting to sticker shock your clients on January 1st with here's your good faith estimate of Mm -hmm. 50 sessions at $100 per session or 200 or 300, whatever your fee is, yeah that I can see some therapists breaking it down and say, all right, here's only six months of anticipated treatment and I'll just put out a new good faith estimate when that one runs out. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think that that makes us be able to talk about clients' progress as far as what do you think that you need as continued services going forward and to actually review your treatment plans with them more frequently. Yeah. I think it's actually a good process to to align this with a treatment plan. I think process-wise, I see it as being something like every January 1st, I put out my good faith estimate. But I think there's an element to that where you know, someone coming in in December and then giving a new one to them in January feels silly. So, but I do think talking to folks at their treatment plan anniversary or every six months or whatever your timeline is, and then talking about cadence, talking about, you know, how they're feeling, you know, what they're thinking about. I think that's a good process. And I know when I was working in community mental health, that was, you know, like you, you talked about termination from the beginning you know, and I feel differently in private practice. Like you might, a lot of my clients are lifers, but I think it is, it's really easy to get complacent uh, when you're just kind of meeting every week and you're not actually taking the time to look at what are we actually working on? What are you getting from this? You know, what, what is your financial situation compared to what we're talking about? I mean, for folks that do sliding scale, this could also be an opportunity to reassess sliding scale and saying, okay, you know, my fee is going to be X January 1st. And, you know, this is what you've been paying, you know, is that still appropriate? Are you able to increase towards the, you know, can you decrease the subsidy, so to speak, you know, like you can have those conversations. It's just a money conversation that a lot of people don't like to have. And so I think this kind of thoughtful, you know, kind of transparent conversation about number of sessions, length of treatment, cadence, and money is important and needed, but pretty uncomfortable for a lot of folks. Being the optimist that I occasionally am, that (laughs) I think that there are some providers out there, especially when it comes to things like sliding scales, who don't know how to bring the conversations back of, hey, you got a job and now you can afford the fee that we had agreed upon before. This does provide those clinicians with an opportunity to have a better touch point as far as renegotiating some of those sliding scale things. It's a natural benchmark. I think the other thing that is interesting on what's being required in these good faith estimates is the client diagnosis. We mentioned it kind of like, you know, do the 
the diagnostic session separate and then a good faith estimate for ongoing treatment. But for some of my clients, they may never see their diagnosis unless I do this, right? And so for folks that don't do super bills or don't talk about it, don't request their records. And so I think that's another thing for folks, you know, before they provide their first good faith estimate, you may want to be ready to have that conversation because it does show up on the billing or it, it does show up on this form. And so being able to make sure that your clients understand how you diagnose, why you've diagnosed, what you've diagnosed and what it means, how it's impacting treatment or not. It does mean that we need to diagnose our clients. And I think some folks are unlikely uh, to do so when they're completely private pay. And I think for people who provide super bills, if this worries you, you're already doing this. It's just now with the potential of a more explicit conversation with your clients and helping clients, as Katie just mentioned, to understand what this process is. and. Again, this is all very good spirited as far as being consumer friendly. And that's, you know, where it does put some of these onerous things on our behalf. But I think it has the potential because of all of these extra contact points in talking about treatment and talking mm-hmm. about money's impact on treatment that clients are going to get better outcomes, which maybe. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, if clients get better outcomes, that's good for you as the therapist. Sure, sure. I, I think that there's there's an element of this that feels very paperworky and could take away from the relationship. You know, like if you have to explain a tough diagnosis that that you know wasn't something that was in the regular conversation, that can that can impact the relationship. If you have to really dig deeply into some of this, I think it's life. I think it's it's therapy. It's good therapy, but I don't know that it's necessarily. I'm not going to just, you know, rainbows and and sunshine uh, about like, hey, you need to to do this because I don't know. I think that there are ways that you can make it benefit your client. I don't know that it's necessarily designed to benefit outcomes. The thing I was thinking about, which is an open question, there are folks who do not take insurance because they don't want a diagnosis and they don't want to have anything on record around diagnosis, whether it's based on their job whatever, some reason they don't want to have a diagnosis. My assumption, I'm not reading anything in here that you have to have a full DSM diagnosis. You could do a V code, you could do something that was subclinical. Is that how you're reading it? Or is this an open question where we have to determine like if people want to refuse a good faith estimate, (laughs) a written good faith estimate, are we allowed to do so? So for those people who are not in network, and mm-hmm. if, you know, the diagnosis question is a thing, if people, you still have the obligation to ask people if they are planning on submitting their claims to their insurance company. Sure, sure. If they are, you're still required to provide the proper diagnosis to them. Sure. Not, sure. not just one that is reimbursable. And yeah. so if you are treating somebody for a Z code, if you are treating somebody for something that is traditionally not reimbursed, that is still the diagnostic code that you're supposed to put on there. That has not changed. That is already in place. And if you're not doing that, that's insurance fraud. Spanish Inquisition's coming after you. 
Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. Okay, so you didn't answer my question, but all of what I said, what you said was I agree to. If someone does not want to submit any claims to insurance, doesn't want a super bill, barely wants a record, can they decline one of these good faith estimates? Absolutely. So that they don't have any diagnosis on any paper anywhere. Absolutely. Okay. You as the clinician still need to charge your treatment plans and what it's based on and all that kind of stuff, whether your clients want a good faith estimate or not. Are we required to diagnose a client? You need to have a reason for treatment and you need to have a treatment plan that is based on something other than a client just showing up and you starting a session with, where do you want to start today and ending it with, you're where you need to be. That <laughs> that may be a whole other conversation. Well, but that, I mean that that is acting within the scope of your license. That sure, sure. So we can have a, a conversation about diagnosis. But from what you're reading, we could either put a non-clinical DSM code, and the, for this good faith estimate, or someone could decline it if they don't want to have a piece of paper with their diagnosis on it. Sure. Yeah. So we may also at some point need to put together a, I am declining a good faith estimate form that people sign. (laughs) You know, that's a great idea. (laughs) You know, it's not like a subpoena where you have to like throw it at a client if they're running away from you. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, there are- I would prefer for an oral uh, good faith estimate versus a written faith good faith estimate. I think these are the things that are kind of the to be determined. We'll wait and see if anybody gets sued or or in trouble. But I think there are probably some some reasons why these would not be customer friendly or consumer friendly. Right. Is all I'm saying. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll table that for now. So there are some other requirements that I think are important for everyone to be aware of. You have to prominently post that clients can and are entitled to a good faith estimate. And this needs to be put on your website. It needs to be prominently displayed in your office. I'm mm-hmm. I'm on Amazon right now ordering one of those neon like scrolling things. <laughs> Just put it up behind me in session. It, oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> or really just posting a piece, of paper. A piece yeah. of paper that says you're entitled to a good faith estimate. And the APA article has both samples of the good faith estimate itself, as well as this notice, the language for the notice, and it, it has instructions on it. We'll, we'll link to those in the show notes, but I think it is big enough that it might be not quite a poster, but still a piece of paper on your wall. And then for your website, I think my suggestion, when if you have a section on fees, this may be a reason to post your fees on your website. People have different feelings about it. And I think that would be the appropriate place to have it listed is in that, that section of your website. And to be clear, you don't need to put on your website just a general, I expect people's treatment to last 
25 no, sessions. No. <laughs> the language that you need to put out there is clients you can request a good are, faith estimate. Yes, exactly. And that's in that APA article. I think the other thing that I was starting to get to get in the weeds, and I think this is more kind of standing questions that will be to be seen. There are a difference between convening providers, which is the person providing the primary service and co-providers. From what I can read, the convening provider is the person who has been asked for this good faith estimate. <laughs> and maybe it's a primary provider. Maybe it's just the person they thought to ask. And if there are co-providers who are providing treatment with you for the identified patient. So for example, you've got a, an eating disorder treatment group that, you know, you've got different folks either in your group practice or that you do a lot of work with. You may end up having to put together kind of this full package of good faith estimates where everybody's services are on there. I think that's a little bit more detailed than we need to get for today's conversation. I think typically you're just going to be doing your own services, but for, for folks who have group practices that maybe share an identified patient with another provider or have a little complexity, you probably are going to want to reach out to your professional association or legal counsel to identify how best to take care of those good faith estimates is, is my opinion. Yes. If this sounds like a lot of extra steps, you're right. And <laughs> some of the things that I'm seeing across the healthcare industry is that this does impact smaller businesses a lot more than group practices and agencies because it is a lot of extra steps and does have time deadlines that mm -hmm. oftentimes you're going to need to provide this in writing to clients who want it within one business day. And if you have a very, very busy schedule, this is something that you're going to need to accommodate. You're going to have to get these systems in place. And I know our friends over at Simple Practice that we've seen some chatter in the Simple Practice community requesting that some of this stuff be added to their platform. I hope that a lot of the EHR systems will be addressing this. So that way it does help to streamline these things. But this is stuff that whether you like it or not, it's here. And, yeah. you know, we're trying to give you just a, even if this is a, hey, I have to go and look at this stuff and I need to make some changes now, go and make those changes because this is things that our world is changing, we have to adjust to as providers and our clients are going to be overall probably better for it, even if that means that we're not. So I want to just, before we close up, I want to talk through what I see as a potential path to try to make this as efficient as possible. And so I'm stealing one of your ideas and then putting together the rest. So I think what your, makes your plan is everybody quit and go find retirement early on some cheaper cost of living place. No, everybody become coaches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, the plan is I really like this idea of having a boilerplate good faith estimate for your diagnostic session. So your 90791, I think the difficulty, unless there is like some sort of a form created in your electronic health record, you may have to create this separately, but putting together that good faith estimate. So it is sent over 
with all of your intake paperwork and it's part of the the process. So this is the fee, this is the service. I think that the nuance and you can have all of your information, the nuance is the client's name and those types of things. And so I'm going to look in simple practice myself to see if I can figure out a way to do it if if they don't fix that themselves or don't put that together themselves. But I think even creating you know, a, a form that you can upload and send to them where you can, you know, kind of do that, that becomes with your intake paperwork, it goes out immediately, you're in compliance. I think the next stage is having that good faith estimate that is for ongoing treatment, has all of your information already in place, has all of the services and fees in place, and then it goes into you know, there's a little bit that you have to fill out for each client that has their information, their diagnosis, and then the number, the expected number of sessions. And that goes out after the first session. I think it's brilliant until they change things. And that's yes, what we will address in some, <laughs> in some future episodes. We do know that there is language that is written into this No Surprises Act that even for out-of-network therapists might be needing to submit some of this paperwork directly to a client's health insurance company. Mm. That part of the law or the regulations has not yet been written. We just know that it's coming. It's reserved in there. And Mm -hmm. that's what some of the future language is. If you're a member of a professional association, check out any guidance that they have as those regulations continue to roll out. We will almost guaranteeing an episode in the future on what that means, especially for those of us who aren't used to talking with insurance companies and what that kind of means. So we kind of want to hear you lamenting these kinds of things. <laughs> you can share your thoughts with that in our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, and share it with us on our social media. We'll include links to all of that in our show notes. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.